Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast. Today, we are excited to have our very first guest, Siri Dahl. Siri is a model, podcaster, power lifter, and award-winning adult film performer who has never shied away from using her platform to advocate for social change. As a podcast host, Siri has been outspoken about the harmful stigma that has followed sex workers of all stripes and leaves the most marginalized at greater risk. So welcome, Siri. We are so glad to have you. So Siri, when we first heard your story and the activism that you're doing, we knew that you would be an awesome first guest. But of course, before we get started, I need to remind our listeners that Open Deeply Podcast is not a replacement for therapy or therapy. Please know this episode has themes of sexual and emotional abuse and suicide. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or an emotional support hotline such as 800-273-TALK, which is 8255. So Siri, before you tell us your story, is there anything that you want listeners to know? Yeah, I mean, I would tell the listeners, I don't know how many listeners to the podcast are going to be sex workers themselves or people who are aligned with the sex work industry. But one thing I want to remind people of, because this was one of the things that kept me from telling my story for a long time or being public about what I've experienced, is that, you know, I think all all three of us know this, but sexual abuse is prevalent regardless of what someone does for a living. And I always want to make sure before I go into my story and what I've been through that, that people keep that in mind. Like I, a a large part of what I do in my activism is about, you know, saying fuck stigma and, and trying to reduce the stigma toward adult performers. And I think a huge part of the stigma is people saying like, oh, you do this because you've been through trauma. And and that's very much not the case. And anyone who listens to my whole story, I think will understand that that is not the case. It's like, we, we all go through shit. And, and this is my story. Thank you so much, Siri. That is such an important point. Absolutely. As a therapist, I've been a therapist for 17 years. And, you know, sexual abuse is one of those things that transcends, you know, class and occupation. And it's pretty rampant, you know, whether you're an accountant or an engineer or a porn performer, I see sexual abuse across professions. So this, this whole notion of relegating it, you know, like saying, oh, well, she's a sex worker because she was sexually abused. It's like, uh, would you say the same thing about someone who's an accountant, you know, because they're pretty much, you know, just as likely or high, you know, it doesn't seem to be indicative of what your profession is. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for bringing that up. That's so important. And with that said, Siri, tell us your story. Let's start this. My story, I'm going to begin, I'm going to go back in time to my high school days. So I was, I'm from Minnesota. I was born in Minnesota. My family moved to Texas for my dad's job when I was 12. So that 
automatically from that time, it was like culture shock, being in a very different state. Like I went from urban to suburban. I went from Yankee land up north, super liberal to conservative Texas. And so much about it changed me. And I think a very important feature of that is that I pretty much immediately started to gain this sense of self of like being an outsider of like not fitting in of not being like the other people at school. I was really a social butterfly when I was a kid and that kind of was interrupted by this, by this move. So that really kind of informed a lot of my high school experience. And then fast forwarding to high school, which yeah, I was in, I graduated high school in 2006. Um, so this is like early two thousands. I was kind of nerdy. I was a theater kid. I had friends. I had like my best friend from middle school and high school is still my best friend to this day. So like I did have some good friends, but I still felt real awkward. And like, I mean, high school is awkward for everyone, but it was essentially, I just got very, very depressed and like, didn't ever receive real treatment for it uh, or therapy. And it was an ongoing thing that I dealt with through my adolescence was just this very intense, just depression dragging me down. I also didn't date in high school. No particular reason why I don't think I, it wasn't on my mind. (laughs) I did go on one date and ask the guy to bring me home early because I was so like uncomfortable. And so by the time I graduated high school, I was a virgin, really inexperienced in the dating world, but you know, had a pretty strong sense of myself. In fact, I was always interested in like alternative lifestyles and stuff. And the summer before I started my senior year of high school, I had read a bunch of books about this thing called unschooling, which is similar to homeschooling, except it's like led by the child and very much, very much not what people think when they think homeschooling. They usually think of like some religious family wanting to teach their kids the Bible. So they teach them at home. Not like that. It was like, uh, unschooling is like, Oh, the school system's broken. (laughs) So, let's let kids do whatever they want and like let their interests lead their learning. And I became obsessed with this concept in a way that made now in retrospect, I'm like, this was silly. It didn't really make a lot of sense that I thought, Oh, this is a really viable option when I'm like less than a year away from graduating high school, but I just couldn't let go of it. And I kind of got a one track mind and begged my parents to let me unschool myself my senior year. And they were like, no, why would you want to do that? And I was like, well, I'm a stubborn little shit. And, uh, and I have friends who are older than me that I will run away and live with if you don't let me do this. Like, so I was kind of bratty and it worked though, because my parents just realized like, wow, she's really serious about this. And she's almost never been this serious about anything in her life. So I guess we'll just have to give this to her. So my, my parents allowed me to drop out of high school and I actually got my diploma by enrolling in this, like, this school based out of Michigan that does, like, online accreditation for kids who are homeschooled and or unschooled. And, like, it's just this real progressive, like, hippie organization. So that's where I got my actual diploma from, even though I still lived in the town where I was going to high school. Like, I just didn't go to school or see my friends anymore my whole senior year. So, like which just further contributed to my whole weird complex about feeling like an outsider and not I'm like like I'm not participating in regular societal things because I didn't go to prom like I didn't go to any senior year events I never had a graduation ceremony like I just felt very much on the outside looking in 
But it was also, on the flip side, an insanely creative year for me. I basically just wrote and recorded music all year and, like, did a bunch of creative projects. And I had time to do whatever the hell I wanted, you know. And, And it was very freeing. And I enjoyed that year a lot. But it had its social downsides. So that was my senior year of high school. It was very odd um, and unlike most people's experiences. And finally, a little bit after I graduated high school, like the next fall, I had started working at a Hobby Lobby of all places. (laughs) The reason I chose Hobby Lobby is because, hey, I get a discount on craft supplies, which I'm buying all the time anyway. I can ride my bike there because I didn't have a car. I had like just gotten my driver's license, but I couldn't afford a car yet. And uh, I knew some kids from my high school who worked there and they were all like the cool, they were kind of like cool, like weird artsy stoner kids. And which is funny, not what people think when they think of Hobby Lobby, but I swear to God, that's what every (laughs) Hobby Lobby is. You either have Christian grandmas or like high school stoner kids working there. (laughs) So I started working at Hobby Lobby in the frame shop and I really loved that job. It was fun. And around that time, I worked there for like, I don't know, six, nine months or something like that. And while I was there, this guy that I'd gone to high school with, who's, I I guess maybe I won't say his, I think I could say his first name, Steve was his name. (laughs) (laughs) He asked me out and we ended up dating for a little bit, which was just like, we hung out a lot. And then eventually, you know, we got comfortable enough that we decided we wanted to have sex with each other. And that was my first time. And I don't know if it was his first time, but maybe. And it was it was fantastic. I enjoyed it. It was just very, like, kind of ideal and what I wanted it to be. Like, it was very nice and tender and, like, you know, it, it was a great experience. And that was, like, sometime in, like, the late fall or, like, early winter maybe of the year after I graduated. But things turned bad real quick. Essentially, like, it was literally one week after... Like the following weekend after I had sex with consensually with my boyfriend at the time for the first time that I was raped by my coworker who also worked at, you know, in the frame shop. And this guy was someone, you know, I'd worked alongside him for months. He was a, an, an artist. He was a painter. And he had, we, we had talked about his art and a lot of his art featured nude women, like figure studies and he was good he had like art that showed all around the like north texas area so he was a legitimate artist and you know we had talked about the way he conceptualizes his art and like he usually starts with like either photo references or live nude references and i'm like okay that's common that college students do that you know he had been to college for art and one of my dreams like secretly that i never really told anyone was that i wanted to do nude figure modeling you know And I told him that and he was like, oh, well, yeah, you can like, you can just come over and I can take photos of you or you can do live whatever makes you more comfortable because like you may not want to sit still for that long, but like not a problem. Like if you want to do it, like that'd be a fun thing. I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. So it was just this very casual like agreement (laughs) that I would model for one of his paintings. But, and I think by this time I'm like 18, not yet 19. Yeah, I just turned 18. So I, you know, we pick a date, I go over to his studio and he, he takes photos of me naked, but, uh, he also drugged and raped me while he did that. And I didn't process it really at all. Like I remember he offered to like drive me home the next morning. Cause it wasn't even supposed to be like 
I wasn't even supposed to spend the night there. You know, like I was drugged and <laughs> unconscious and I couldn't get myself home. So I remember he offered to give me a ride home the next morning and I was just like in dis like I did not understand what had happened, honestly. Like I didn't remember most of it because again, I was I was drugged. Siri is about to discuss her post-sexual assault experience. After a sexual assault, it's incredibly common for survivors to experience a secondary trauma from those who are supposed to help, such as loved ones, the police, the justice system, etc. Having access to an informed advocacy organization can be a total game changer. If you or someone you know has experienced a sexual trauma, please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-HOPE. 4673 or go to rain.org and that's the rape abuse and incest national network for help on a second note siri expresses confusion when the da states that she looked aroused in some of the pictures that her alleged rapist took while she was unconscious what they may have witnessed is what sex educator emily nagowski calls arousal non-concordance Arousal non-concordance can include the body physiologically responding to psychologically unwanted sexual events. For more, please watch Emily's brilliant and profoundly important TED Talk entitled The Truth About Unwanted Arousal. Now back to Siri. And a couple days went by and it wasn't until like, I want to say two or three days after that I actually realized like, wow, that wasn't okay. And I need to tell someone. And I told my best friend and I told my mom and basically my mom was immediately like, you have to, we have to go to the hospital. Like she, we, she took me to the hospital, which, you know, we went to the police, I guess we went to the hospital, reported that I was raped. Like they did a rape kit. And then I talked to a detective at the hospital and that turned into going to, to the police station the next day and like giving a statement. And the police responded very quickly. Like they basically immediately went and like, you know, arrested the guy and seized everything in his studio, his computer, his camera, all of his film, everything, and brought that in as evidence. By the time I actually, like, the legal stuff started to get underway, the only, I have very foggy memories of some of the details of this stuff, just because it was, like, I've literally suppressed a lot of it, or, like, you know, haven't, like, I spent so long not processing or, like, repressing these things, but specifically, the thing I remember most clearly, because it fucked with my head so much, was meeting with the district attorney with my mom. It was my mom and I and the district attorney and, like, her assistant. They were both women sitting in this, like, you know, private lawyer room or whatever down at the courthouse in Tarrant County, which is, like, Fort Worth, Texas. And being told, like, they, one of the attorneys had a big stack of paper, like, a huge stack of printed out photos, and she, like put her hand on it and she was like this is all the photos that he took of you and we don't want you to see them you do not have to see them like <laughs> but we just need you to know that if this goes to court if this goes to trial you are not only going to have to face your rapist in a courtroom and tell this story to however many people but these photos are going to be given as evidence and people will see them like everyone in that courtroom is going to see them and also, we think you should drop the case because there's no way to prove that none of this was consensual. Like, some of the photos he took of you, you look like you're doing it consensually, which is wild to me because, like, I was definitely unconscious in the bulk of them. Like, 
But I guess if my eyes were open in any of them, then that means maybe I had consented. I have no idea what, like, to me, that's still a puzzle. But like a side note to this is that this was in 2007, I think, because by now it would have been January. And since then, there's actually been like documentation. Like I found some articles in like the Fort Worth Star-Telegram and stuff that like during that era, their DA was notorious for not prosecuting rape cases like there's some crazy statistic i read and i don't want to like misquote it so i won't say any numbers but it's a very high percentage of reported rape cases were never investigated never prosecuted like nothing happened so i was probably one of many many people that had an experience like that where i was told hey we don't think we can win this case 100 percent for sure so we're just going to drop it and like the rapist walks free and that's what happened he did walk free I, he lost his job at hobby lobby so <laughs> So there's that, but but he had no other repercussions. And then the way that my own family reacted to my rape was also disturbing, and I didn't realize how much it affected me until many years later. My mom did her best, but I think she also was very... I how do I put this? My mom's like a, like a real... I think my mom's a feminist, but I think she's also very much a, like, second-wave feminist... <laughs> Yeah. And she she never said this, but the tone of her reaction seemed to me like that she was disappointed that I put myself in that situation, going to this artist's house to nude model for him. Like, and she never said that, but it just kind of permeated all the interactions. And I think as a side effect of that, it was like, even though my parents could have afforded to, I grew up like upper middle class, my mom could have afforded to just hire a therapist to talk to me one-on-one, -on -one, like a couple you know, times a month, but that didn't happen. It was just like, oh, drive yourself to the rape crisis center, which is like 45 minutes away in downtown Fort Worth and get the free therapy that you get from the county, which I did a handful of times and then just stopped going and lied about it because, or maybe, maybe the, it ran out. I don't even remember how long they prescribed the free therapy for, but it might've just been like eight weeks and then you're done. But I stopped going because the therapist I was assigned had a giant uh, diploma on her wall frame that was like from Southern Baptist University. And I automatically assumed this woman's going to judge me because I went to high school with Baptists. I grew up with those people and I knew them to be folks who shamed anyone for doing anything sexual. And I didn't feel comfortable talking to this woman about my trauma. So I'd never really got therapy for it. And that was and I just kind of closed the door on it mentally. I didn't really think about it or talk about it or do anything for a really long time. So fast forwarding like a year or two, you know, after my sexual assault, I decided that I wasn't going to make any real effort to go to college uh, for another year. So I basically had a full year off from doing any school stuff. Then by the time I wanted to go to school, I was like, oh, I'll move to Austin because I wanted to go to UT. So I moved to Austin lived with some friends down there, and that's when I actually first started to consider my own sexuality. Because, again, I hadn't really thought about it too hard in high school. I wasn't dating or really, like, getting crushes on any anyone who wasn't just, like, some random celebrity. And that's when I first had a huge crush on a woman and realized, like, ah, I must be gay. Which was immediately my assumption at the time. It wasn't, I must be bisexual. It was, I went straight to, I'm a lesbian. <laughs> By now, you know, it's like late 2007. And uh, this is like the height of the L word being on TV. And I watched every fucking episode. And I just, 
felt this like strong want for that identity for like a community of people that I could feel like I had something in common with. So I started identifying as a lesbian. I remember like making a dating profile, uh, on, I don't remember on what site, but something. And, uh, <laughs> and like going on casual dates with women and like having a great time. And then I met this woman who lived in California. We ended up dating long distance and she came out to visit me a few times cause she was like older than me and had money to spend on travel. Uh, <laughs> so that was my first relationship like real, like longer term dating relationship. Also my first orgasm was with her. <laughs> a lot of firsts happened in that relationship. Uh, it was a fantastic time, but also I still was dealing with depression the whole time. Cause when I wasn't like, you know, that was a long distance relationship and my actual daily life living in Austin was pretty lonely, but I also came out to one of my family members. I came out to my aunt, like my one cool aunt that I have that year. I came out to my older sister that year. So like, it was definitely a time of like finding my identity and kind of getting some comfort around the idea that I wasn't a straight person. That year I was in Austin for that one year. And then uh, my family who had been kind of subsidizing me living there because it was expensive. My, my parents were like, we can't afford for you to live here anymore. It's just way too expensive. And like, you know, UT is expensive. The only way we could afford that is if you like take out a shit ton of loans or like get a scholarship, which that wasn't going to happen. So I moved back up north to North Texas and switched schools, ended up going to school up there. And by now I'm feeling pretty strong in my lesbian identity. And I like immediately joined the like on campus, like feminist group and the uh, LGBT group. And that's where I found my, my real like core college friends and had a couple like really nice years there. I was like really involved in acting in the vagina monologues when I was there, did all kinds of campus activism stuff. We used to do this like body image week where we'd go stand on campus in like this booth area that we had and we'd be like our underwear. It was all about body positivity and being like making different types of bodies visible. It was like a really good time and also, I when I was there, I had my first like what I call my slut phase when I <laughs> when I started like being more comfortable approaching people casually or like actually finding out. It was a big realization for me of like, oh, there are some people in this world who want to fuck me. I don't have to wait for someone to come ask me for that. Like I can approach someone that I find attractive and I actually found some power in that. So that was also a neat development out of that time uh, when I was in college. And all of that led to me having a growing interest in kink and non-monogamy, which I had always had an underlying interest in, but never really explored. So like I had a fet, I made a FetLife profile. I was on pretty much all the dating, like OkCupid was probably the biggest one at the time, but I experimented with a bunch of different dating sites. Tinder didn't exist yet for kids who are listening to this who are like, but what about (laughs) Tinder? And that is where I met my future husband, who I guess I'm, I'm not going to name him. I'm just going to say my future husband or my, my ex or whatever he ended up being. <laughs> so that's where I met this guy. I'll call him B, actually, because that'll be easier for the purpose of telling my story. So I met B on OkCupid. He was quite a bit older than me and lived six hours away. But it basically immediately we started chatting and he was like, I'm going to come visit you again. He's much older. Like by this time I was, I think 22 
And he was an established adult with a career of his own who like made his own hours. So he could just be like, I'm just going to leave work this week and come visit you. And that's what he did. And we, the first time we met, we hung out for like three days straight. And it was just like an immediate immersion in this like developing relationship. My college roommate who I lived with at the time, she met him and like immediately hated him. (laughs) And I... (laughs) Which I should have taken as a sign at the time, but I did not. I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. I like this guy. Things with him got serious really, really quickly. And within, God, like six months, I want to say, I stopped going to classes. I basically effectively dropped out of college, even though I had like less than a year of credits before I could graduate. I was super close to graduating, but I just like stopped going. I'm going to backtrack real quick because I didn't mention this earlier and I kind of meant to in the timeline of events, but along before I met B, one of the other developments when I found out, oh, I'm interested in kink, interested in non-monogamy was I actually, that's when I first got the idea that I wanted to do porn was around that time. And I had had similar ideas in the past, like when I lived in Austin in like 2007, Suicide Girls was huge and I actually applied and they denied me because I guess I didn't have enough tattoos and I was like chubby at the time and they didn't allow chubby people on their website at the time. Uh, (laughs) So, so this was like the idea of me wanting to do porn or some sort of adult uh, entertainment was very much not new by the time I met B and going fast forwarding back. uh, It's like 2011. The year I I met him was 20. Yeah. 2011 like early, early January, February, 2011. So I, I, I dropped out of classes. I immediately moved in with B and we started living together. Like, I mean, he moved up North where I was, he moved to me kind of supported both of us. Cause even though I worked at the time, like, you know, I'm, I mean, I barely made enough to like <laughs> afford my own living expenses. So he kind of subsidized a lot of our relationship. It wouldn't be appropriate to call him a sugar daddy because it was very much not that arrangement but he was definitely like a more established adult also not rich by any means but just like you know an older guy he was also a swinger like he was already established in the swinger community which is pretty huge in in texas and throughout like dallas and stuff so we started going to swinger parties together which i liked but also had some problems with that i never really voiced at the time just because i was like oh this is just a big adventure and like you know, <laughs> I don't want to think too hard about any of what's going on. But as someone who had just like literally a year prior identified strongly as a lesbian, it, <laughs> it was pretty weird to find myself going to swinger parties where there were like really openly homophobic men. And it was, you know, I, I think I still didn't really understand my bisexuality at this point. Like, cause I remember telling my mom, oh, I'm dating a guy now. His name is B. And my mom being like, oh, you're not dating girls. Like she didn't understand it either. Like <laughs> in her mind, bisexuals don't exist. <laughs> so, but yeah, I kind of like something under the rug in the, in a sense, like it kind of like weirdly changed my idea of my own sexuality, like temporarily because going to swinger parties, the big thing was like dudes wanting to watch girls fuck each other and make out. And I was like, for a while, I was totally fine to play that game. But then I also got really tired of it real fast. And like B and I used to have arguments over that because I'd be like, this is stupid. I don't like the way that men are objectifying like women. It's like no one here is really gay. It's just a bunch of like girls pretending they're bisexual or like I just had so many issues with the community. 
which, you know, isn't probably fair of the swinger community for me to say that because it's not all like that. It's just to my 22 and a half year old brain, I was like, this is weird. So our relationship started off like just fucking weird. Like it was on a not a great path from the beginning. He like gave me an engagement ring. Like, I want to say two months in, it was like crazy fast. He gave me this engagement ring that was also like probably worth $15,000, like a massive, massive, like three carat diamond thing. And I didn't really like it. I was like, this is audacious as hell, but I still wore it because I don't know, like part of me was like, I feel like I'm living someone else's life right now. And I'm like, kind of into it in a weird way. Like, I feel like I'm like, Leonardo DiCaprio and Catch Me If You Can, like, oh, I'm undercover. I'm I'm a straight woman with a giant diamond ring. Uh, (laughs) So, but, you know, B turned out to be a pretty awful person. He was kind of controlling in ways that I didn't understand or realize for a very, very long time. I told him that I had this kind of weird little dream that I wanted to do porn. And at the time, what I meant by that was that I wanted to do queer porn, specifically like working with a lot of like other queer people and a lot of women and like trans or non-binary people. An inspiration of mine for this idea was like Crash Pad Series, which is a website I had a membership to for a long time and like loved. And B was like, absolutely that's a fan like i totally support that you want to do porn but i think you should do mainstream porn because i think you have these like gigantic boobs and you're really attractive and you would do very well in it and you can act and you're well spoken and i was like well that's not my goal like i don't want to be like you know uh in my head i i don't like this phrase now but i think at the time i probably would have said like i don't want to be some porn bimbo like was what i would have thought But he kind of convinced me that, like, hey, if you're going to go for this, you know, and your family's not going to like it, like, you're going to be naked on the internet. If you're going to go for it, you may as well shoot for the top and try to be as successful as you possibly can be. And he had an argument there. And it really eventually convinced me because I realized, like, ah, the more I kind of researched the porn industry and looked at kind of available options or, like, companies I might work for, agents I might want to work with, I was like, you know, I think, I think I could be really successful in this. And I kind of very quickly developed a lot of ambition around that. So with his funding, essentially, both of us moved out to California, to Los Angeles at the very beginning, like January of 2012, I lied to my whole family and everyone I knew about why I was moving to LA. I said, I was like keeping the job I had from Texas, but just transferring and I got an agent in LA and then immediately like started shooting scenes and things were going very well. But a month or so in, my whole family found out. And I think, I still don't really know exactly how, it doesn't matter. It, but it, what matters is that it was through the grapevine. <laughs> like they didn't find out from me, which is what I wanted. I wanted to essentially do porn for a few months, make sure I didn't absolutely hate it, and then tell my family when I knew it was going to stick but I never got that chance. So my family found out through the grapevine. My parents assumed immediately that I was being sex trafficked. And I can get how they thought that. Like I lied to them about why I was going out there. I, they had met B, but they did not really particularly like him. And they also knew he was significantly older. 
so it kind of had all the makings from the outsider's perspective of like, ooh, this girl is being trafficked, but I wasn't. It was literally all my idea the whole time. My parents were so worried about me, though, that my mom hired a private investigator to like follow me around for several months in L.A. And I never knew that. I only found that out like literally years later that she did that. But apparently the private investigator like reported back to my parents and was like, uh, she's very much doing this willingly, <laughs> which just confused them even more because they thought I was like put on drugs or something. And I'm sure the private investigator also was like, yeah, she doesn't do any drugs. <laughs> so my parents are just confused. They're worried about me and my sanity. Basically, my whole family like kind of falls apart during this time. And it was a lot. I kind of did not address it because I am a very much a person who would rather avoid conflict. So my response to all of this was to clam up. And I think I initially tried to address some of my parents' concerns, but I it kind of became a thing of like, well, this is so uncomfortable every time I talk to you guys that I like, I just can't keep doing this. And I'll just like, ignore your, you know, yelling at me about my life choices. <laughs> and B did not help there because he would do this thing. And this is an example of what ways that he was very manipulative and controlling, but I didn't really realize it at the time. Like if I ever was on the phone with a, one of my parents, he would encourage me to put it on speakerphone so he could listen to the entire conversation on both ends. And he wouldn't say anything like they wouldn't know he was there. But then as soon as the call ended, he would like sit down and have a powwow with me about like, like, here's what your parents think, like, as a parent myself, because, oh, that's one thing I forgot. He had two teenage daughters who were, like, closer to my age than he was to my age. So he would be like, well, as a parent, I think it's wrong that your parents are responding this way. And, like, you know, they don't really, they, they probably don't really, like, love you that much. Or he would tell me what I said wrong and what I should say next time to, like, filter myself better in front of them. It was very weird. And so there was a lot of, like, weird coaching going on there that he totally didn't have the place to do and that was incredibly like manipulative and controlling of him and worsened my relationship with my family overall while all of this is going on I am finding increasing success as a porn star like I started shooting in 2012 by the end of my first year, I'd been nominated for an AVN award for like best newcomer. I had been, I had won like a free ones website, which I, I don't know, it was really popular website at the time, not so much now, but like I won their best new newcomer award. So I'm finding all this success and like really loving my work and learning a lot about the porn industry and really finding a sense of empowerment in it that I had never experienced. You know, it kind of, it was like, I described earlier that I, you know, having my little like slut phase in college that I had this epiphany of like, I can approach other people and they might say yes. Like it was <laughs> a massive thing for me to realize like, wow, I'm empowered to, to like own my sexuality. And so my first year in porn was like that, but just on steroids, it was like, oh my God, like I'm building this fan base of people who like enjoy what I'm doing and, and I'm getting to... It was thrilling for me that I was hired almost more often for, like, girl-girl or, you know, in the porn industry they say, like, girl-girl or lesbian porn. I was hired to work with women almost as much as I was hired to work with men, and that was, like, an ideal situation for me. So there was so much about it that was fantastic, and I was really developing, like, a love for my career, and 
and more ambition and goals of, you know, being in the industry for my whole life really. And like one day having my own production company and going down that route, like I had so many great things that I was looking forward to and so many big plans for my career. But as my time in the porn industry wore on, you know, cause I was, I was active from 2012 through essentially the end of 2014. Like I think I officially retired in January, 2015. So it was about three years exactly that I was in the industry the whole time I was with B, we, by that point we were married, which was like his idea. And he kind of pressured me into marrying him. <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess why not? And he was like, yeah, tax benefits. So, uh, it was a pra- pragmatic thing in my mind that I pretty quickly regretted, but he was pretty central in a lot of ways to my porn career. He was like my personal assistant and he stopped working like the whole time we lived in LA he didn't work at all I was the only one working so supporting both of us and on that note not making a lot of money doing so it was like a kind of a standard middle class (laughs) income for someone in Southern California I was just so depressed and it took a really it literally took three years for that depression to sink in but it got to a point where I was like you know I'm not talking to my family I have seen my mom like once or twice in three years I don't get to talk to my siblings. The only person that I see on a daily basis is this fucking guy (laughs) that's manipulative toward me all the time. And I started to feel like a caged animal. And the depression got really, really bad. I became suicidal. The last year before I retired was probably the worst. I, there were multiple times that I would uh, lock myself in like the spare bedroom and basically just like lock myself in the bedroom and just threaten to kill myself. And he would never do anything about it. Like, is that's the craziest thing to me. He would be like, he would threaten to call the cops, but he never would. And I knew that he wouldn't because I, uh, I can't fully speak uh, on this publicly, but I knew that he had done very bad things in the past. And I think he was afraid that he would be arrested or something if he called the police on me. So out of his own selfish, like, self-interest and narcissism, I guess, he didn't even bother to like try to get intervention for me when I was constantly threatening to kill myself. And like, it was bad. I was researching methods. I, I'm surprised that I, that I wasn't able to actually accomplish it at the time because it was, I was that on the edge constantly. Um, the only time that I felt good about things was when I was at work because I wasn't around him and it wasn't and I could just focus on my work and let my ambition and my like career you know really rule my my brain and and I loved that so in a lot of ways you know it's funny that people have this stereotype of like ah people who do porn are like broken and I'm like ah Porn was actually my happy place for that whole time. It was my personal life that was falling apart. Finally, in like late 2014 is when shit hit the fan. I had started seeing a therapist a couple times a week and was like really in denial about how bad things were. But finally, I got to a place where I was like, man, I gotta, (laughs) I gotta change something. And, and ultimately, I just realized like, I, I have to. I have to stop all, I have to hit a reset button. So that's when I decided to just move closer to to my family and to leave my ex. 
but obviously that also meant it was like a package deal. I was like, I can't really stay having a porn career and like not be in a relationship with B because he's so ever present. And like, I just literally do not know how to get this person out of my life without just saying fuck it to all of it. So that's when I, that's ultimately why I, I left the porn industry was like, I, it was out of self-preservation. I knew that I would do something awful to myself if I stayed. So I moved, I, I moved to Kentucky and kind of just started my life over again. I had like $10,000 in savings to completely rebegin my life and furnish a new apartment and like it was intense. I got a job, like it's just a regular civilian job and, you know, started rebuilding my relationship with my family, which was fantastic, but also weirdly bittersweet because I could tell a large part of why they were happy to have me back is because I stopped doing porn. And they thought that like the reason they thought part of my reasoning for leaving porn was like that I had come to some epiphany that it was immoral which was obviously not the case. But I also didn't really have the energy to correct them on those assumptions. <laughs> I was kind of just like, okay, think whatever you want. I'm done with that. I, I'm just going to continue living my life. So I intended to get out to Kentucky, start a new life, and just like, I, I don't know, I didn't really have a plan. I was just like, okay, I didn't kill myself a plus and, and, and like this is the best I can do right now but very very soon I started dating a guy that I met at work at my new like civilian job Siri is about to discuss stalking the American public tends to joke about stalking but according to the NCADV 76% of women murdered by an intimate partner were stalked first 37% of stalking victims fulfill the diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, and one in four stalking victims has contemplated suicide. This is no joke. According to the CDC, approximately 7.5 million people are stalked every year. For stalking resources, go to stalkingawareness.org. And if you are experiencing domestic violence coupled with stalking, go to safehorizons.org for help. And that relationship ended up lasting for like 18 months and it was tumultuous as hell. And it was very weird to me that I went from being, you know, a very non-monogamous person, having sex with all kinds of different folks in porn and, you know, being real proud about my bisexuality to like being a monogamous straight woman. And this, this boyfriend, this guy that I started dating, he was like an ex-Marine, like really not the type that I would typically go for. <laughs> he, things were fine. Things were really fine for a while. And it was at the end of our relationship, like the last like month, I had gone back to college and was studying a lot. And so I, I've always been the type that I can't like focus when I'm at home. If I'm studying, I would like go to a coffee shop and work. And he thought that was so strange, I guess, that he like got the idea in his head that I was cheating on him. And which I think also was partly because he knew I had done porn in the past and he said he was okay with it, but he had never really asked me about it either <laughs> or was like, seemed curious, which I should have taken as a sign that he was highly uncomfortable with it. So he started stalking me. Like I would go study at some like coffee shop and I would like see him like walk past a window outside and you know there was one time I was leaving to drive home from this coffee shop and I like saw him 
like running away from me up the street, like hopping in his car, like trying to be stealthy and then like driving away. And then when I got home, he was already home. He was like, oh, hey, uh, where were you? How was your day? Like, like he never, it was very weird. And things came to a head one night when I, I went out to this place to, again, I was like working on a paper. I was studying on something and it was like a coffee shop that served beer. And so I had some, I, I had had a beer and like, he walked in and saw me like talking to some guy that I, that was like at the coffee shop. There's like some guy from Canada visiting and well, I would like started a, a conversation with this guy and my, my boyfriend walked in and like immediately like made a giant scene and like accused me of cheating and stuff. And it was because he had been stalking me and like saw me talking to another male. And like, that was, that was the, the, the last straw for him apparently. So, <laughs> so I broke up with him on the spot. Like, you know, he made this scene and I was like, get out. I'm, I'm never going to see you again. This is completely over. And that's how that relationship ended. He went home that same night and packed up everything from that. We lived together at the time. He packed up everything and just disappeared without a trace. Like I, you know, we still worked together though. So I still saw him at work, but, uh, <laughs> but that was the end of that relationship. It was very abrupt and weird. And I couldn't afford the apartment that we lived in on my own. So I had to move back in with my parents. So I lived with my parents for like another, uh, several months, but I, by this point had become, I guess, a serial monogamist because about a week after that breakup, I was again at a coffee shop working on a paper <laughs> and I got asked on a date by this guy that I ended up dating for about another 18 months. And that relationship, this guy I'll call C... Siri is about to discuss her experience with a loved one with bipolar disorder. Now, bipolar disorder is a mental disorder that causes unusual shifts in mood, energy, activity levels, concentration, and the ability to carry out day-to-day tasks. Severity of symptoms varies from person to person, but it's my experience that it's often possible to become stabilized and lead a fulfilling life if one gets the right help, such as a psychiatric evaluation for starts. For more information, go to the National Institute of Mental Health, which is nimh.nih.gov. It was a it was a really good relationship for a really long time. Like we had a lot of fun together. There were a lot of things I did that were like lifetime firsts. Like we went skydiving together. Like you know, it was it was a super positive relationship for a long time, but it was also something that never should have been a long term relationship. Like it, we we could have casually dated for like five months, and then called it quits, and it would have been like a fantastic time that we remembered fondly. But instead, it turned out to be this like nearly two year ordeal, and <laughs> he had bipolar type one. And that was my first time really like seeing someone with a a pretty severe mental illness. Uh, and he had a really, uh, intense manic episode and I was his caretaker for this entirety of this manic episode. And I ended up having to like get a, uh, get him like put him in the mental hospital essentially against his will. Like I had to go get a, a legal form 
to do that. Like, and this was all with the urging of his own mom who couldn't do it herself because she lived across the country. But she was like, he has been in a manic episode this bad before and he has nearly killed himself and he will harm himself. He has to be in a hospital. If he won't admit himself, he's going to have to get there on an involuntary hold. So that was like a huge changing point in the relationship. He never really forgave me for it. I don't think so, at least, you know. And I kind of understand it because I felt really guilty about it at the time, but I was like, I don't know what else to do. He's literally ripping his clothes off and like running around the streets. He's going to get arrested and the police aren't going to be able to handle someone if they don't understand that they're mentally ill. So after that and being his, you know, really being there for him and, and having a big reckoning of my own where I had to be like, wow, this is an intense mental illness. Do I want to be in a relationship with someone who might... Like, that this could happen again. Do I, like, this is a lot for me to handle emotionally. Am I up for this? And my decision was like, yes, I love this person enough that I am up for this and I will still commit to them. So things got even more serious after he got out of the hospital. And we continued dating for about another nine months. But I was also growing increasingly depressed again during that time. And I, this was a weird time for me because I didn't understand why I was depressed. I... It was like, I have a job that I'm enjoying enough. Like, you know, it's not perfect, but like I'm getting paid well. I have good benefits. Like, you know, I have fun with my boyfriend. Like we go out, we do things, but uh, life was just not ideal for me. And things felt very stressful with my relationship with C at the time. And I couldn't really figure out why, like we just fought a lot about little things, little disagreements. I think he was a lot more conservative than I was, and that was hard for me to accept. And we would have arguments about things like that. And it kind of just came to a head one night in the summer, and he had come home. We had just started living together. Like, he asked me to come move in with him, which was big, because he was, like, very commitment-phobic. But him asking me to come move into his place with him was, like, a huge, massive step, and I was excited about that. So we had been living together for less than a month, and he worked late. He was in the service industry, and he would get home really late often. So I was, like, in bed, falling asleep, and he came home one night and woke me up specifically to tell me that it was over. (laughs) And that just fucking crushed me, like... For multiple reasons, but one of them was which, like, I was I was increasingly depressed at the time and, and really showing it. And I think that part of it was that he, like, couldn't really handle how depressed I was. And it felt like being stabbed in the back after I felt like I had, like, sacrificed so much and been there for you when you were in the hospital. And, like, I put so much of myself into this relationship and making it work and trying to continue to make it work and being willing to commit to you no matter what. And like, you're just going to wake me up in the middle of the night and dump me (laughs) is how I felt. And I snapped, like I just immediately snapped. And I, there were a couple times in the past that I had snapped, but this was like really the first time that I knew I was in grave danger of, hurting myself. I think the closest I had ever come in the past was with my ex, the one I never named him, but, uh, the, the first guy I had dated after I went back to civilian life, the guy who had been a coworker and stuff and like stalked me like the, the closest I'd come before was one time when I had an argument with that ex and 
had impulsively like grabbed a hammer and smashed the claw end of it into my shin, like, and had a real big like wound from that. He ended up calling the police on me when I did that because he thought I was going to like hit him with it, which is totally reasonable and understandable. So like I had, I had self-harmed in the past, but not in a like ritualistic or like consistent way. If I ever had the the inclination to do it, it was like a, like a knee-jerk reaction to feeling in a pressure cooker kind of thing. So this boyfriend, C, waking me up in the middle of the night to be like, ah, oh, it's over, this isn't working, was just the perfect trigger for me to, like, go directly into, like, self-harm territory. And I immediately recognized that I was going to do something very dangerous that I was going to harm myself in some way. You know, this particular week, this him breaking up with me came at a time where like just a week prior, I had literally been making plans to kill myself. So it it was just the perfect trigger. Like I had already been kind of loosely planning things around that time. And, you know, so it's not that he broke up with me, like that's why I couldn't handle life. It was just that things came to a head and this particular event was really just the thing that I couldn't take any more of it. But it was also like two in the morning and, you know, I'm not a gun owner. Like I knew that there was no, like the plans that I had in my mind were things that I couldn't have executed immediately. But I also was like, I will, I might do something like worse than that. I don't know. So I picked up the phone. I called my mom and woke her up in the middle of the night. She lived like 20 minutes away and I was bawling and I just told her like I you need to come get me I'm I'm at home like you know where like just come get me you have to bring me to the hospital I will explain I just I'm in danger and I need your help and she's a great mom and she immediately dropped everything and (laughs) got her robe on and came and picked me up and she brought me to the hospital where I admitted myself and I was just honest and I said like I I'm I'm about to kill myself and I don't feel safe and I shouldn't be alone. And they admitted me to the hospital, put me on an involuntary hold for suicide watch. And yeah, it it was, and I ended up staying in the, in the psychiatric ward. I mean, they transferred me to a different hospital because that's how that stuff works. But like, you know, I, I ended up staying for a week in a mental hospital or, you know, I think there's better words for, it's like behavioral care center (laughs) like the the less awful sounding name but it was a mental hospital that's where I was I stayed there for a week it was mental hospitals are intervention I feel like a lot of people maybe well I think most people don't have the experience of staying in one and a lot of people misunderstand their place in uh mental health care but it's an intervention this is like a place that you go or are sent against your will when there really is no other option and you have to be you have to have an eye kept on you for one reason or another because you're a danger to other people or yourself some people check themselves in like you did it's not always against yes. your will some people do yeah, it of yeah. their own accord yes which you know was my experience like meeting the other people who were there that week was very much a mix you know and there's also a lot of and that's one of the things i learned in my time there was like wow a huge number of people in the mental hospital were people who did not have homes, who would r- routinely admit themselves 
for multiple reasons, but, you know, like, they truly did have a mental illness that needed care, but also, like, because of the way the system works, that might be the only way they could get guaranteed housing for, like, a week until they got kicked out because the hospital would say, like, ah, this is the longest that we'll house someone who doesn't have insurance. So a huge, I mean, that week was a massive... It was awful and very depressing, like, because you are, it's similar to, it felt similar to prison. Like, you don't get to do anything. They take all of your possessions away because everything is a possible implement for killing yourself. They started me out on medication, which I hadn't been taking any psychiatric meds for a while. I had, throughout my life, since I was, like... 17 I'd been on various antidepressants with mixed results but while I was in the hospital that week I was prescribed uh one particular antidepressant that I that actually worked for me and I'm still on to this day and that's one of the best things that came out of that was this doctor prescribing me a med that I was like wow how has no one prescribed this to me before this actually works <laughs> but it was a it was a huge sh- shift in perspective for me being in the hospital that time uh, for that week, because I, I realized a lot of the ways in which I am fortunate. And, you know, I, I had already an understanding by then of all the different forms of privilege that I have. Like, you know, I'm white, I'm, I grew up upper middle class, like I, you know, there's a lot of privilege that I enjoy, but that became even more apparent when I was in the hospital and meeting people or hearing the stories of people who had so much less opportunity than I had. And in a lot of ways that actually, it it helped me feel better about my life because it was kind of like, wow, I me being this depressed is like, I felt like I this is such a waste. Like I, you know, it, it, it really changed my perspective because in a lot of ways it made me realize that like I wasn't being honest with myself about what I wanted from my own life. And I hadn't been honest with myself about it for a long time. I've known other people to have similar epiphanies, whether they go inpatient or maybe they're a privileged person that goes, goes to prison, you know? Yeah. And it really gives them a wake up call about the fact that you can really use your privilege to have a, a better life and to like really live in gratitude about that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and it and I would say it had that effect on me. And so within like a month after I got out of the hospital, I it helped that I was on medication that was actually working. It helped that I, you know, even though the way that the breakup happened, it was pretty traumatic for me. But like the fact that I was not with C anymore was also a help because I wasn't with someone I was constantly arguing with. Again, had to move back in with my parents because uh, I didn't have a living situation worked out when I got out of the hospital. And that summer, you know, after a, a month or so after I got out was when I started doing my podcast After Adult. And I've never told anyone in my porn fan base or like gone public about the fact that I had an experience being in a mental hospital. That's something only my fr- family and cr- close friends know about. But that is truly kind of one of the impetuses for me starting the podcast that I have been doing for the last two and a half years. The big reason why I started doing the podcast after adult is because, you know, after this experience in the hospital and kind of recovering from all this trauma and depression and trying to create a life I really wanted for myself, 
part of my realization with that was that I needed to talk about my experiences in the porn industry and I needed to talk about like my experiences with sexual assault. And there was a lot of things that I had never processed around that. And a huge thing was that I realized a lot of my depression, even after retiring from porn was related to this internalized stigma and like horophobia that so many people around me would be like, ah, you did, you used to do porn. That's pretty cool. It's, you know, I, I'll be your friend, but I'm just glad you don't do it anymore. There was just a lot of kind of unspoken stigma that I felt from people around me, namely boyfriends (laughs) that I had dated that I had really internalized and had been ignoring essentially the fact that I missed my adult entertainment career and I had sort of suppressed that or been ashamed to admit it, I think. I think this is going to be a theme with this podcast, and we've already talked about this in the first four episodes, that it's our internalized shame of various kinds that really hijacks us, you know, and and that internalized shame comes from the culture, our family, it gets internalized. And when we start to shed it, that's when we get healthy a lot of times. Yeah, that's exactly been my experience. You know, I started I started doing the podcast and the first several episodes are like so awkward and bad. And in fact, they're so awkward and bad. I literally like unlisted them like you can't find them anymore. And that's intentional on my part. (laughs) I'm like, okay, these serve their purpose. The podcast is very much something else now and no one else ever needs to hear these again. (laughs) (laughs) So anyone who's listened to the very first like eight episodes of After Adult, consider yourself lucky because no one else is going to hear them ever again. But they... You know, it was necessary for me at the time, and uh, the podcast eventually became something else, you know, when my best friend Rachel was like, do you want a (laughs) co-host? And that it became something more conversational, and then with Rachel's input, it became something where I had someone to bounce off of, and someone who was genuinely curious about the porn industry and my time in it, and like, and also very supportive of that, and she always had been, but you know talking about it on a podcast made it feel different and more out there. And that, that also in the first year that I was doing the podcast was when I started to kind of accept that I wanted to do some form of sex work again. And by then I was working a office job. I was working as an editor and like a copywriter. And I really liked the work I was doing. It was the most adult Uh, no pun intended, like the most like actual, like civilian adult job that I'd had, like very steady, typical office job. And I enjoyed it. But also, (laughs) I was like, this is actually really boring. And it was almost the boredom of that job combined with doing this podcast where I felt so free to express myself and like talk about sexual things and really be myself in a way that I feel like you're only really allowed to be in an industry as wide open and accepting as the porn industry. And those two things combined made me realize, like, I really want to do sex work again. So, yeah, by January 2020, literally exactly a year ago is when I decided I'm going to actually quit my my job, my job job, my civilian job, and go back into porn. And that brings us to current day. What I've realized since coming back to the porn industry is that, it, for me, it's not just that doing sex work or being in porn is 
is like a way to make a living, but I genuinely feel a, like a kinship with other sex workers. I'm happier than I can ever remember being in my adult life now. And I think a massive part of that is because I have finally allowed myself to accept myself and, you know, good and bad. Like, you know, I've, I've, I've made mistakes in my life. Like, <laughs> obviously none of us are perfect people, but I'm, I'm really proud to do the type of work that I do. I, I feel a really strong connection with fans, with people who write to me and have like just random little like questions about sex or whatever. But a huge thing for me is just like this idea of overcoming stigma. And I think, you know, it's like I, I started out my podcast saying I want to overcome stigma. And then it very quickly became like, ah, well, the best way to do that is to actually like do the thing I want to do, which is be a sex worker again. <laughs> So I'm just, I'm just so happy to be here and like, I am truly doing what I love and it makes me very happy. Uh, and it's just a side benefit, honestly, that I can support myself doing it because this is also probably the, in, just in terms of financial security, this is the best job I've had also as an adult. Like I can pay my student loans now. That's also important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you know, I just want to thank you because I feel like you have broken down so many stereotypes that you hear about sex workers and porn performers. And I'm sure there's a lot of people, uh, you know, that have a similar profession to you that are probably waving their pom-poms right now and saying, thank you, <laughs> you know, right? And, you know, we have so many questions that we want to ask you about this episode, you know, uh, going back further in the in what you said, I want to ask you in the next episode that we have with you about how did your boyfriend stop stalking you, um, your ex, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and uh, how did you break your patterns with emotionally abusive and controlling men? And, and uh, you know, what gave you the inner strength to go to the hospital and, and what self, self-care have you done since then to heal like meditation? Those are all a few questions and more that we'll ask you in the next episode. And, and Sunny, I'm sure you have some things to say as well. Oh, absolutely. I cannot wait to to just dig in and deconstruct. And listeners, that's what we're going to be doing in our next episode. As Kate said, Siri will be joining us and we're going to do some process and dig into some of those questions and get to some of the central themes in Siri's story. So we hope you will join us too next time when we dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.